Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. and welcome to the Australian National University's first panel, The Vote 2016 Federal Election Series. Tonight is the first panel of the series and rather than focusing on particular policy issues, we've decided tonight to give an overview of the general issues in this campaign. So we'll be discussing policy, politics and predictions. I'm joined by a group of experts from the ANU Crawford School of Public Policy and I'm Catherine McGrath. I'll be your MC for this evening. Quentin Grafton is the Professor of Economics at ANU Public and an ANU Public Policy Fellow. Quentin is a Fellow of the Asia and Pacific Society and Director of the Centre of Water Economics, Environment and Policy. He's also Editor-in-Chief of PolicyForum.net. Sue Regan is a Researcher and Policy Analyst based at the Crawford School of Public Policy here at the ANU. Previously, Sue was Founding Chief Executive of the Resolution Foundation, a UK-based research institute focusing on the well-being of low earners. Bob Cotton has been a visiting fellow at the Crawford School of Public Policy since 2005, where he was actively engaged on public policy, executive education and outreach. Bob, as a senior academic facilitator, leads senior APS staff on Asia and Pacific leadership programs and study tours. Bob is also a former Australian ambassador. He was ambassador to New Zealand and Malaysia. And also, for reasons that will become obvious a little later, Bob has had a very close uh, contact with politics over many years and we'll share some of those stories with us tonight. Now I'd like to start, before we start tonight, I thought as you've got a journalist in the room, which doesn't happen every day, I should bring you a few stories from the campaign currently as it sits. Now you may know at the moment the Prime Minister this afternoon has flown into Sydney. No one knows how long he's going to stay because that's how campaigns work. He uh, has flown in, he's going to do some events. We know the Prime Minister wants to be every day out and about early, so you're going to see him at vegetable markets. You might have seen him yesterday in Brisbane at the uh, vegetable market. He may be at the Flemington markets in Sydney tomorrow. Who knows, really? We'll just have to wait and see. But he'll be moving a lot around the country, and you're going to find a lot of stories, a lot of events from the Prime Minister coming from central Sydney, from the key marginal seats in central Sydney. There's seats like Banks, Barton, Reed, Lindsay, on the near central coast of Sydney, near to uh, near to central coast of New South Wales, north of Sydney, so it's Robertson, Dobell, Barton, further north, Paterson, around Newcastle, the government considers virtually they've lost that. You may know there's been a redistribution, which has been quite unkind to Liberal Party members, so at least two seats in New South Wales they already consider they've lost. Eden Monero around here is actually safer as a result of the redistribution. Now, Bill Shorten is in a bus. You might have seen his bus on television. <laughs> it's a very bright and bold bus, and I think they're very happy with it because it's getting lots of pictures, lots of attention. And I'm told that... Uh, they're driving the bus, apparently, from Cairns to Sydney. So I think they're going to make a lot of that, visiting schools and hospitals along the way. So as you can see, as they do that, the narrative of the campaign begins to unravel. Or oh, sorry, begins to unfold, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not unravel for them. 
<laughs> but there will be unravelling because it's a political campaign and every day on a political campaign there are surprises, unexpected things for leaders to deal with. So they're dealing with the, the mega narrative they have in mind and they're dealing with the crises and things with new candidates, old candidates, people being rude to them, members of the public, all sorts of things. So it's going to be an interesting time. But anyway, we can talk more about that later. We're going to hear from each of the panel. We're going to start with each of them giving an idea of the, the things that are important to them that they think voters and generally people in Australia should consider and have the opportunity to know more about in this campaign. There'll be time for questions, so please think about what you'd like to ask us. We'll try and get to as many of you as we can. We'll start with, Bob, with uh, Quentin. Quentin, um, in a few minutes, what sorts of things do you think you'd like to consider tonight? Thanks, Catherine. Thanks for the opportunity to talk and thank you for coming here this evening uh, for this policyforum.net and ANU event. What's important for me, Catherine pointed out that I'm an economist, so I do care about the economy. I think pretty much every Australian does and uh, no doubt Sue and Bob will add to my comments in terms of what that means for a whole range of other policies. But I think it's, it is the economy, inverted commas, stupid in the sense that uh, I think for too long we have been complacent in Australia. I think for too long I don't think we've understood some of the risks and the storms that might be coming our way, and I don't think we've adequately prepared for them. So what I would hope, what I would wish for in this coming election campaign is that all parties, red, blue, green, or whatever colour they want to go with, that they actually engage in terms of talking about those risks. Uh, maybe this is wishful thinking, but in particular the public policies that they want to enact on behalf of of Australians. So there's a whole range of things to think through. We've, we've got the budget uh, you know, one week ago uh, from Scott Morrison. We understand there's a number of tax changes that have taken place. I would be arguing uh, beyond those sorts of tax changes, we need to have widespread tax reform. There's a whole set of issues that we face here in Australia. Uh, I'm happy to engage with questions later. I don't want to take up the floor at this time. But the whole set of issues are related to uh, uh, house prices, whole set of issues in terms of uh, uh, the efficiency losses associated with a whole range of taxes. You can't make ad hoc changes. You have to make across the board changes. So keeping certain things off the table just doesn't make any sense, whichever political stripe you might, you might wear. So in terms of myself, I would hope hope we get the debates we need, that we talk about the economy, we talk about the risks, and we talk about the sorts of things Australia needs to be doing now in 2016, from July 2nd onwards, to prepare for, uh, I think, some, some uh, unpleasant uh, weather coming our way. Thank you. Thanks, Quentin. I think one of the benefits of a forum like this in over eight weeks is that people coming along or listening to the podcast will get a chance to hear about issues in greater depth, because I think we all feel the information that you receive in the publicly available sources are interesting, of course, but for deep policy analysis, it's, it's not available. So, Sue, from your perspective, you're particularly involved in social policy, where do you think we need to be discussing more and what do you see in this campaign? Um, yes, I mean, clearly there's a, a, a very strong link between economic policy and social policy. Um, but taking a, a social policy lens on the election issues, um, I think there's, there's two issues that I wanted to kick off with. The first was uh, in relation to housing and housing affordability. Um, we've heard a lot uh, already about Labour's proposed changes to negative gearing, um, and there's been uh, a lot of discussion about what impact that might have on the housing market uh, and what impact it might have on house price growth. 
Um, you know, we can, we can argue about that analysis, but I think we might all agree that those, uh, the impact would, will be fairly modest in dealing with the issue of housing affordability, you know, which is a, a big concern in the community, not just access to home ownership, but also prices in the private rental market. Um, so I think that, you know, there's a, I, I'd like to see more about housing and housing affordability during this election and seeing a bit more uh, vision and a bit more substantive policy in relation to investment in housing. Um, and then the, the, my, my second point was really just uh, a more general point about seeing the election issues from the perspective of people on low incomes. Um, uh, you know, we've, we've heard uh, a lot about housing, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, about education, um, a bit about health, which is uh, encouraging. Um, but, you know, we know from the budget last week um, that a lot of the, or some of the welfare reforms that were in the 2014 budget uh, uh, have uh, remained in place. Um, so we know that, that the coalition government were, has committed to making cuts to family payments, uh, that young people will have to wait a month for their income support, that uh, some youth payments will be reduced. Um, you know, and I think there's, a, there's an agenda here uh, that we're not, that hasn't yet been really explored. Um, I think it's encouraging that fairness uh, has, uh, and, you know, has the potential to be a theme throughout the election. Um, but if we are, you know, serious about fairness and inequality, yes, we need to uh, do more to reduce some of the generosity uh, of those who are high earners, so you know, both parties have made reforms to superannuation tax reforms, but I think we also need to focus on people uh, of low incomes uh, uh, and issues around tackling poverty and disadvantage. Thanks, Sue. Bob Cotton. Thank you. Thanks, Catherine. Um, yes, two issues for me, when I sort of come at them, what I think are the importance for Australia now and into the future, one of them won't surprise you, climate change. I absolutely think that is a fundamental issue we do need to come to terms with. Uh, it's important in so many dimensions, the economy, society, energy, international relationships, our future security, and so on, and the security of some of the nations around us too, incidentally. I think on that one, I think the Labor Party, to its credit in this campaign, has put together a pretty coherent set of what it plans to do. Certainly is talking about more ambitious targets for carbon reduction, more ambitious targets for renewable act activity. Uh, we'll get rid of the direct action policy, thinking about how you price carbon within the economy, how you're going to price electricity networks and so on. So I think that space is absolutely worth watching. Um, I tend to think that the current government doesn't want to go too much down that space. And uh, during the election campaign, I, uh, I think the reason possibly, no doubt, is that the tensions within the Liberal Party and, and beyond, just what is the right way to go here. But certainly in terms of fundamental importance to Australia, I think that should be there and absolutely worth watching through the election campaign. The second one for me is, uh, and there's been a bit of talk around this for some of the commentators, um, what I like to call infrastructure development. But when I say that, I mean broadly defined. I mean, yes, it has to do with roads and bridges and railways and whatever. One part of all of that in terms of our future economic activity and, and transport efficiency is the sort of intermodal hubs in the big cities. 
how do you bring the shipping and the trains and the trucks and the aircraft together and handle all of that stuff? But I want to go a bit beyond than that. I think it's very important that we think about our infrastructure in terms of the national broadband network, for example, getting us that sort of capacity for our smart, innovative, agile society. Uh, none of us seem to be terribly thrilled about the NBN at the moment. Um, it seems to be disappoint a lot of expectations there. And uh, when you think back to the big visionary schemes of Australia, the Snowy Mountains scheme and quite a few other things that have happened in our, our lifetimes and so on. So I'd like to see a bit of activity there. And again, with that one, again, there are some important international implications. Who would like to invest in our infrastructure and what's the best way to do that? That's probably enough. Okay, so, Quentin, I'm thinking it's not every day I get to sit down with a professor of economics. So I'm looking forward to you enlightening me a little <laughs> bit because when we look at the policies of the Prime Minister and the Opposition Leader, the Labor Party and the, and the Coalition Party. Is the government right when it says, as a result of its budget, that its policies will result in trickle-down economics, it'll help people at the bottom because they're giving a tax cuts to those earning $80,000 to $87,000 and they're tackling superannuation? Is that right? No, if, if you want to help the poor, <laughs> you have a tax and transfer system which gives transfers to the poor for a variety of ways to do that and Sue is, uh, can, can uh, expand on that. So uh, I, I think the argument, for, as I understand it, from, from the Prime Minister and the Treasurer is that they want to grow the economy and therefore have more jobs and therefore have a bigger economy and therefore an ability to, to spend for, for transfers. That's, that's my understanding of it. It's certainly a tax cut from people, um, uh, uh, you know, which is basically just increasing the, the, the marginal income tax rate, uh, uh, the, 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 the rate when it threshold that comes in. It, it will make no, no difference <laughs> uh, uh, really to, to those people in any fundamental way and it certainly doesn't make any difference to the people at the bottom. But I think the argument from the coalition's perspective, and I'm not here to represent the coalition at all, but I think their argument is that the, the, uh, the change in company tax rates will improve and increase the rate of investment in the economy and in so doing will therefore increase the size of the economy and therefore more jobs, more employment uh, and um, higher tax revenues perhaps then to support uh, the various transfers in place. I think that's the, I think that's the argument that they're, that they're pursuing and, and indeed uh, the Prime Minister himself calls the, the budget uh, the economic plan uh, for Australia. Um, uh, I'll have to say this, I won't be popular in saying it, I, I don't think the Prime Minister truly believes it's an economic plan for Australia in the long term because how can a single budget uh, which doesn't address wholesale tax reform, doesn't deal with a whole set of issues, can possibly be defined as an economic plan for Australia. Um, so I would argue that there's a whole range of things, and I'm happy to, to talk them through, I don't want to hog, hog the limelight sort of thing, a whole range of things that we need to be uh, thinking through. So for example, if, if we're really serious about investment, then shouldn't we be thinking about what the banks are doing in the context of where they undertake their lending? So much of the lending that takes place by the, the four big banks in Australia goes into the property sector uh, for mortgages, uh, and they have a, a, a real incentive to do so. It's, it's based by their the capital requirements. So in other words, uh, they, they have to have you know, a, at least four times as much capital when they make a loan to a business enterprise uh, than they have to do if they make a loan to, to a I might just hold you on the only in that I think these are all really good points to talk about. No, we'll, we will get on to them. No, thank just you. Ding, ding. We'll stop. Oh, of course, thank you, Mike. 
what I was going to pick you up to, just to discuss that thing about, you know, you're not here to speak on behalf of yeah. the government. I think that's absolutely right of everybody here. Yeah. But I think probably people coming along, I think people are thirsty for information. Of I think course. they want to hear, well, what should I think about that? I've heard them say this. What, is, yeah. what do you think? So I want to ask you, do you think they're right, the government is right when it says the economy will grow by cutting company tax rate over time to 25 there's evidence from the Treasury and there's other evidence to support that, but it is a very, very small amount of growth, very small amount. And more to the point, and I think the key question is not that question, I think the question is what are the alternatives and what are the other options? And I think there are other options that would be much, much better, which grow the economy by far more, that they have been ruled out in terms of uh, this last budget and indeed uh, in terms of the economic policy dialogue. So if we're looking at the economy, specifically as one area that people want to know more about. What do you think Labor, or what, what is Labor offering? They have particular policies out there. They have a tobacco tax, for example. There's certain things they've looked at, but have you looked at that and what's your considered opinion of what Labor is offering? Well, uh, they're, they're certainly not offering uh, company tax reductions. Uh, so they're offering uh, something different. So they're offering uh, additional um, taxes in the context of higher income earners. There again, I don't see that as, uh, as growing the economy. Uh, it maybe addresses the issues in terms of sufficient amount of money for transfers. But I think the bottom issue, and, and Sue hit on it in terms of homelessness, in terms of a, a poverty issue, but it's an issue for the economy and in the efficiency side to this. If a lot of the, the money that we have in Australia that's loaned out just goes into housing, how does this grow the economy? There's, there's some new construction, but there's a whole bunch of businesses they can't get loans. So that, to me, tells the, that we have a problem in this economy. When we have cash rates at 1.75%, which are record lows, it tells me we have a problem in this economy. When we have income levels, bank and growth, basically flatlining the last three years, that tells me we have a problem in this economy. If I look at last week's budget, if I look at the policies that are currently under discussion, I don't see a plan to fix this. Uh, it's not a, something that can be fixed in a month or a year or even two years, but we need to have a plan and I don't see that plan and I'm crying out for that plan um, but, uh, and, and hopefully we'll get it at some point. And I'm sure there'll be lots of people with questions, so we might get ready for the next question after I speak to Sue. So with the microphone ready and get um, Penny if we could for the next person ready. Sue, how do you see at the moment from the issues you look at the parties compare? Um, so there's, uh, there's some similarities. Um, I mean, both parties uh, have committed to uh, programs to help young unemployed people get into work, and that's a, you know, a big concern uh, uh, to the community in Australia. Um, you know, I think Labor uh, has been trying to put forward uh, more positive policies around health and education. Um, there's some dis differences on their education policies. Uh, obviously, Labour are fully committed to the Gonski package. Um, the coalition have gone some way to needs-based funding, um, but not as far. Um, so I think there's there's some similarities. Uh, and I think, you know, as Quentin mentioned, uh, perhaps Labour have gone a bit further in trying to secure funding that we can invest in. Uh, uh, in people, uh, you know, whether that's through the transfer system uh, or through other uh, human capital investments. Um, 
So yes, yeah, so, but I think it's also the case that there's still we haven't a lot we haven't heard from. So um, uh, you know, I mentioned at the start we haven't heard a lot about childcare reforms. Um, we haven't heard a lot about other forms of disadvantage around <coughs> mental health, indigenous disadvantage. Um, so I think you know I think social policy is yet to really hit the headlines in this election, um, but hopefully we'll hear we'll hear more about it as it progresses. Thanks, Sam. Bob, we'll come to you again in a minute. Now, we're going to go to questions. We'll try so we can get around as many as possible. Try and keep the questions as short as you can. And this is, remember, a public forum. It's podcast also on policyforum.net. Please uh, tell us who you are and where you're from, or just your name, and uh, we'll get through as many as we can. Yeah, Jeff Lazarus, Climate Active Australia. Uh, I just want to take just a slight issue with you. I think it's really important that we do focus on climate change, obviously. But I've, um, I'm certainly a sceptic when it comes to the Labor Party's commitment to actually achieving very substantial sorts of goals, simply because when it comes to the issue of coal or any power station, any coal mining, Labor supports it. They will not move away from that. They will not even support the shutting down of Hosewood Power Station, which is the um, um, uh, dirtiest sort of power station in, in the Southern Hemisphere. So it's all well and good for them to announce uh, renewable energy sort of policies and, and, and have targets which look OK, uh, superficially at least, but um, I'm not sure about the, the real action required to uh, meet those targets. And of course, this is something which is just so common in the Western world. Governments are aware the public, uh, that the public is concerned about this issue and putting out policies which look and sound good, but when you get into the actual detail and look at what they're actually doing, those targets haven't got any chance of um, being achieved. And the sad thing is, the latest data from NASA on, um, uh, on global warming is absolutely frightening. All right, well, we'll try and give okay. Bob a chance to answer that. Look, uh, well, thank you. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't disagree with much of that. Uh, I guess my point would be that climate policy in this country has kind of been the kiss of death for many political parties and leaders, so they've been a bit reluctant to pick it up and push it out there. And so I, I, I do commend the Labor Party for actually being prepared to put something together out there in the election campaign. I do agree with you about the significance of what we are required to do to start to take the steps to decarbonise the economy, to take out those, you know, I think I'm right in saying that the um, electricity sector is the one that generates the most carbon dioxide. How do you take down low, you know, how do you take down the most uh, emitting uh, coal mines and such like that? Some very good work's been done here at the Crawford School by Professor Frank Yotso and others, which are actually debating how you might do that. So it'll be interesting to see whether the coalition responds to any of this during the campaign. My own expectation is I expect not, but I think it's worth you know, pushing on to see how we go. Thanks. Can I just add something on the, the, the Gillard government? Uh, they did have a program called Contract for Closure. They put a considerable amount of money into that, but 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 yeah, they yeah. They, they they didn't get the takers at the at the price that they would have expected to get. So so there certainly has been that policy in, in place uh, in, uh, under the Gillard government, but uh, it did not succeed. No, it didn't succeed. Nice question up here. Uh, are there any votes in research and innovation, and is there clear water between? the lead parties, and the second part of the question is, what about the balance of power, assuming we end up with uh, no party, or none, one of the lead parties not having the balance? Uh, can I have a go at, at the first bit of that? Um, yes, I, I think um, I'm a bit surprised as, a, as an ordinary citizen voter at the way the CSIRO has been kind of monstered, and I think that's a real shame. And I think I ask myself the question, 
what's wrong with research in the national interest? What's wrong with public, you know, serious research, scientific research? And we're certainly going to need it across a whole range of fields, as you're saying, and absolutely in the climate world and Antarctica and sea level and a whole lot of stuff. But I would have thought there's a very good um, case for that. But it's not a straightforward, narrow, commercial case. It's a public interest case. And I certainly see that, as I was saying a bit earlier, as part of the national infrastructure. On, um, on um, balance of power in the, in the in, I assume you mean the lower house? Uh, yeah, I think that's, a, that's, that's a certainly a possibility. Um, and just to get it out open right now, if I may, um, I'm not a big fan of the polls. Um, I try to sort of stand back from them a bit. I'm a bit like George Megalogenis, who I think said he tries not to have, mention them for quite some time. Uh, in an election campaign, what I do is I also check it with the bookies. So, uh, looking at it this afternoon, <laughs> the bookies have the coalition to win at $1.30 and Labor at $3.50. So that's interesting just because, um, as people always used to say, you always got to back someone who's putting serious money on these things, not just an opinion. So I think the possibility of it, yes, yeah, I think it could be quite tight in the lower house. And that could lead to all sorts of political implications. What does it do for uh, Turnbull's leadership position? Anyway. So, Bob, now's probably a time, too, to talk about your personal engagement with politics over many, many <laughs> years. So, and why this gives you an insight well, today. And what do you think of today's politicians? <laughs> <laughs> how long have you exactly how long have I got? Let me start. Well, the reason I have an interest is I'm a son of a politician. I grew up in a political family. My father was Sir Robert Cotton. He was a very active member of the Liberal Party. He was there when Menzies formed the party way back in, I don't know, 47, whatever. He had a couple, he had a couple of very clear views on politics and engagement, but he had election time. I think uh, well, one, one I know very clearly is you shouldn't go into politics until you've had another career somewhere else. Uh, you should really have life and other experience before you went into the game. Second is in election campaigns, voters, or you lot, hate disunity in parties, really hate it, uh, are going to punish it. We elect you, get on with a bloody job, do something and we'll judge your performance three years' time. He was very strong about that. He also had strong views about the, what he called uh, the common sense of the ordinary Australian voter. And I said, okay, uh, what's that? He said, basically have a very good sense of who is a good choice to lead the country at any particular time. So we had a good example of that. He was in the Gorton-McMahon governments and they got booted out. He was a minister. I rang him and said, how do you feel about the common sense of the Australian voter now? <laughs> he said, you bastard. <laughs> but he did say they were right. We had lost the plot and we deserved to go. And what would he think of today's politicians? Well, just, if I quickly finish that, um, that bit. The other half is three years later, history rolls on, Whitlam gets... Uh, you know, Whitlam, they go to an election, he's reinstated as a minister, he rings me and says, what do you think of the common sense of the Australian voter? And I said, reluctantly, I think they're right this time. I think he would, uh, current day politicians, I think he, like me, would have a regard for most people who go into politics, which is most people who go into politics set out with high ambitions. They care about the country, they want to do something for it. But... Um, and some don't, of course, some are just right in there for what they can get. Uh, but certainly, very quickly, you have to make compromises. How are you going to get into, what party are you going to join? How does that conflate with your particular set of issues that you want to push? Then your party has to get power. 
And sadly, in a way, right now we're in a power game. And that's how we resolve this stuff in a democracy. So I have a bit of regard for politicians who go through all of that. And let me tell you, once you've stood for election and won, you regard yourself as a bit different. It's kind of a, you know, you, you're in a different group of people. It's a hard thing to do. You think about it going back there every three years and having a go at it. So he would, he would, I think, have a strong regard for people who want to go into politics. As a liberal, I'd have to say, I think he'd be a bit disappointed with what current day liberal party platforms are. Okay. Interesting points, Bob. Thanks. I had a question up the top here. Um, hi, this one's for um, Quentin. Um, the modelling surrounding corporate tax changes and economic growth, is that based on the, I think, somewhat faulty assumption that the corporations will actually pay that tax? <laughs> Stop writing. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the focus initially is on, on, on uh, companies with uh, a small turnover, so that's less than $10 million. So a lot of the, the issue about profit shifting uh, uh, is being focused on the larger companies, uh, and the, in particular the multinational global companies. So they have a whole range of ways that they tax minimise or tax avoid. And so in the budget there was also um, uh, additional funding for ATO, Australian Taxation Office. Uh, I think it, it's supposed to be a thousand staff, but they've left staff go in the previous year, so it's maybe about 500 extra staff to address those and perhaps other issues. So yes, the modeling is uh, very um, simplistic in some sense. Uh, they create these things called uh, computer general equilibrium models which are a simplistic view of how the economy operates, but, but they do provide some indication. Um, but they do uh, require some uh, connection between what the, the tax rate does and how it changes and, and behavior uh, uh, of the companies. So yeah, there's, there's some, as I said, small, small gains there associated with the, the, that ta tax change. But as I stated in my earlier comments, uh, there are so many, much it's like seeing it, you know, uh, 25 cents on the sidewalk or, or the path and, and going for that, whilst there's a $10 note, <laughs> you know, standing, sitting right next to it. It seems to me that's the that's the that's the situation that I would uh, say that that the problem that we're in right now from the last budget and indeed uh, just just the general policy dialogue on, on the economy. Thanks, Quentin. We'll have a question up there in a minute. But Sue, just back to you, if we could, in the areas that you study, looking at what uh, the coalition and Labor are offering, what are the strengths that you've seen of either of those policies? And in your own research, is that playing into, at the moment, do you have any evidence to back up some of these uh, observations that you have because of the work you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I think the, I think some of the strengths uh, are um, recognition that we you know, need to be doing more in public policy terms to help some groups in our society. And I mentioned, you know, that people, the, uh, the issue with youth, youth unemployment in this country. Um, and, you know, so I think there has been, uh, you know, a, a good new announcement by the government last week uh, on a policy to help uh, young unemployed. Uh, Labour have an existing policy on that. Um, the coalition have also announced uh, something called a try, test and learn policy, which is particularly to help groups who are most at risk of sustained welfare dependency. Um, so, you know, and I think the, the evidence shows that those kind of uh, intensive models of support are really needed for certain groups. So I think there's, um, you know, there's a, there's a degree of evidence-based policy going on there, and that's uh, encouraging. Um, 
Yeah, and I think, I mean, on areas where there's less recognition, I mean, I think, you know, uh, I think there's a lot of evidence now that shows that the level of New Start, uh, which is the payment that most unemployment people, un unemployed people in this country get, uh, is very low, uh, and that you are in poverty if you're on New Start. Um, and there's, I think, evidence that shows that uh, being in poverty doesn't help you find a job. Um, you know, and that actually you need to have a, a decent standard of living in order to make that transition to work. Um, you know, I've done some work looking at previous welfare reform and welfare reviews in Australia. And if you go back to, say, the Henderson Poverty Inquiry in the 1970s, you know, that uh, he advocated the need both to uh, increase levels of income support as well as helping people get into job. It wasn't a, you know, an either-or, and I think there's a lot of evidence that shows that um, you know, the levels of income support now you know, in no way disincentivise work. You know, so no a lot of the people, if they were following things from the budget, are probably aware that last week the government announced this new program called PATH, which yeah. stands for Prepare, Trial, Hire. It's basically a youth internship yeah. with a small amount of wage to top up. Um, the welfare payment and there's been a lot of debate over the last week from different groups with a whole range of opinions. Some youth support groups have said this is the training we need and some other, you know, ACTU for example says no it's just a shortcut to reducing wages. Have you looked at it? What do you think? Um, I mean it, there isn't any clear-cut answer to that. I mean I think uh, there is a uh, there is certainly a risk that if it's not um, implemented well with uh, you know, particular safeguards that it could lead to you know, a cohort of people who were uh, you know, intern, rolling interns and companies recruiting rolling interns. Um, and it doesn't have the, you know, the desired impact, which is creating real jobs uh, for young unemployed people. Um, so yes, yeah, so there's certainly risks, but I mean, it's a, it's a decent investment. Uh, uh, and it does include other supports which uh, you know, should help people into work. Do you think that this is the kind of intervention that the labour force has needed? I think, I think it's one, yes. Yeah. What would yeah. other ones it's be? Not, oh, I mean, uh, I think there are, there are, other, there are <laughs> other groups uh, who need support as well. I mean, we have a lot of... Uh, we, we have a problem of uh, both unemployment and underemployment of older people in the workforce. Mm. Um, and there hasn't been much debate about that. There's, uh, you know, female workforce participation is still lower in Australia than uh, some other OECD countries. Um, you know, and I mentioned childcare reforms earlier. So I think there's, uh, I think there's other groups that uh, need additional support as well. I think big issues for people that we'll touch, we'll get back to housing, we started on housing a bit early, we will get back to that, and superannuation I think is a big issue, so we'll revisit those a bit later. There was a question up here. Hi, um, the panel was just talking about um, some workforce participation measures. I'd welcome some, um, some views on um, industrial relations reform and how you see that playing out um, uh, throughout the campaign. Um, Obviously, uh, 07 with work choices didn't go down um, great for, for the incumbent government then, but obviously um, IR reform is something that the, the current government's keen to pursue. Um, just remains to be seen when, um, when they'll decide to do that. So I'd welcome your thoughts on that. Can I just jump in to let you know that the podcast is on the website on the vote on the ANU website. You can follow the links at anu.edu.au. Thank you. It's there.
let me have a bit of a go at that. Um, as I hear you talk, my, my reaction is the first thing that comes out of my mind is we've just had a double dissolution election called on the Australian Building Construction Commission. I really wonder how much of us going to be worried about that so much in eight weeks' time. I mean, I think it's probably an important thing to do. Personally, I didn't think it was necessary to go to all those sorts of lengths, but nonetheless, I suspect the politics of the matter are going to really dominate the debate for most of the campaign. Really, what is, you know, Royal Commission here, banks, you know, the unions, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but when you start to talk about workforce, you know, training, participation, flexibility of employment and things like that, which is probably where we need to go with this debate, um, I, I expect to be a bit disappointed on it, frankly. I just think the politics of it are just so set and so rigid that they, they can't sort of resist belting each other over the head with it. So that, uh, but I, as I said, with the ABCC, who, who cares about that in eight weeks' time so much? And we'll try and get around as many questions as we can. There's one up here. Hi, Malcolm, a Canberra local. Uh, an economics question. The banking sector as a whole takes home perhaps tens of billions of dollars of profit each year and presumably collects fees in addition to that for their services of tens of billions of dollars more. Is that a fair price to, to pay for the services they provide or are they seeking economic or obtaining economic rent from the economy and possibly slowing things down more than it should be? Well, look, it's a very good question. So uh, our banks, our big four banks, uh, uh, generate a very high return uh, on, on equity. Uh, and uh, uh, so well, when Gail Kelly was uh, uh, CEO of Westpac, she had a, a line in the sand of 15% uh, return. And of course, they've been getting higher returns than that. Now, what's happened in the last uh, 12 months, uh, a little less than 12 months, there's been changes in terms of the capital requirements. Now, they become effective July 1st, so it's just a short time away. And that's meant that they, uh, the, the, um, their ability to leverage funds, in other words, they take in a deposit and then how much they can lend out based on that deposit. Banks lend out multiples of what they take in and that's how they make their money. And that's part of the problem that we have in Australia in the context that it's much, much better for a bank and if you work for a bank, uh, you're a shareholder of a bank, uh, you want them to lend to, to the housing sector because the capital requirements for there are so much less. And that's the problem. So it now becomes a, a whole network of issues for us in terms of we don't have sufficient business investment, so we try and do company taxes, but we should actually look at the, the nub of the issue, which is actually the banking sector. Yes. So uh, I would argue, uh, yes, we need to have banks that are solid, we need to have banks that that, that, that are sound, and uh, there need to be support in the sense that we don't want a bank going under, that would cause a, a disaster for the economy. But at the same time, there's a whole set of expectations that we should have from banks. We don't want just banks to deliver for themselves and the shareholders. We want banks to deliver for the Australian economy. So we need to make sure that the incentives that they operate under are the incentives that we want for the Australian economy as a whole. And I would argue, and I already have, that I don't think those incentives are properly aligned. A lot of focus has been talking, talked about in terms of the, the culture within the banking sector. There was a huge outrage at the discussion of a royal commission 
on banks and the banking culture and goes beyond that. Um, uh, I don't have a problem with having a Royal Commission. I don't have a problem in investigating what's going on. The financial sector is very important in Australia. There's a whole set of issues that have been uncovered in the last few months that we need to look at. So I'm not saying throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, but I am saying that needs to be some fundamental changes. We can look at the, the Murray inquiry that came out mm. uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, lots of good recommendations. Some of them have been taken up by the coalition government, but they identified some very, very real risks in the financial sector. I can even quote Chapter verse, actually, I have it here, I won't, but if you wanted me, I, I could, pointing out the high risks in the Australian financial sector. You don't typically hear that from the banks, okay? So it, it's really about, uh, I think, uh, reforming the, the financial sector. I think there's paths forward. Murray has talked about them. Some of them have been implemented. I don't think we've gone sufficiently far enough, and until and unless we do, I think we've, A, faced substantial risks, and B, I don't think we're gonna get the best we can out of our economy especially if we don't get the investment in the business sector that we need to get. Hi, uh, Warren Curry, self-refunded retiree here in Canberra. Um, Two-part question, why do you think people's perception in the, you know, in the voter sphere, if you want to use the term, that there is a disconnect between social policy and economic policy? They just don't seem to be matched. And the second part is everyone sees social policy as a cost and economic policy as profit. And they're just, there's never going to be a twain, and, and, and they should actually be part of the single, single solution. Yeah, I mean, Quentin and I would agree on this. I mean, it, hap you know, it happens within universities that, you know, in a, in a disciplinary sense, we don't, we often separate out economic policy and social policy, so we're, you know, we're at fault too. Um, you know, but I, I, I don't know why that's not more broadly seen. Um, I think they're just seen as a, there are a different set of issues, and of course you can't, um, uh, you know, as Catherine was suggesting earlier, you can't rely on economic policy to do all your social policy for you. Um, you know, you have to make choices about social policy as well. Yeah. I mean, economic growth is a great social policy, but you still need to make sure that you, you know, that works for uh, all groups uh, in society. Um, so. No, indeed, and I think, you know, but, but a lot of economic policy is, you know, and should uh, be about uh, the health of the economy, um, you know, and that's good social policy too, I would argue. Um, but I agree, there is often a, a disconnect between economic and social policy. So can I just jump in? Bob told us a little earlier what he thought, or he shared with us what the bookies thought about the election outcome. It's, the so it's a good time to ask you, <laughs> what do you think from your perspective about what the outcome might be on election day? I mean, this is one of those questions that, um, uh, you know, if it was next week, I might have a better idea. I mean, at the moment, I think, I mean, it's a long campaign, you know, we've, we haven't talked much about what is distinctive about this campaign, you know, and I think, you know, one of the things I think is distinctive, uh, and I hope it sustain, is sustained, is that we seem to be talking a bit more about policy, uh, which is good. Um, but obviously another very distinctive feature is uh, that it's long uh, and so there's lots of time um, uh, for things to change, people to make mistakes. Um, I'm with you, Bob. I don't, um, if you look at what happens to polls during election campaigns, they jump all over the place so I don't mm. look at the polls much mm. either. Um, I think there's uh, a good likelihood of a hung, hung parliament uh, and that there might be 
a few weeks of uh, Australia not having a government while a coalition is cobbled together. Um, yeah, especially if Tony Wins is re-elected. And Bobby, you wanting to come back? I, I was just going to say, I think in my own mind and where I talk to people, I think in addition to all of that, uh, I think there's a bit of a sense out there that, well, the, the major part is electors are sick and tired of this rapid turnover of governments and political leadership and for God's sake get on and do the job we elected you to do and stop you know, mucking about. Uh, I think there's a, with that there's a bit of a sense that Turnbull hasn't really been given long enough a go yet and uh, I think some of us, and I guess I include me, uh, appreciate that he's got some significant tensions within his own party. So what he's been able to do thus far. Let's see how it plays out over the next eight weeks. And Quentin, what do you think? Look, uh, Bob gave us those numbers at Senebad. I'd be um, putting a hundred bucks uh, on Labor uh, because I think I don't think those I don't think those odds reflect what what will be the election outcome in July second. So I I there's a lot of confidence in the coalition. There's a lot of confidence by the Prime Minister. He has a double dissolution election. He has a 55 what is a 55 day campaign, and he uh, his economic plan is announced in the in a budget. So you've got to, you have to be supremely confident to, to do those sorts of things. Uh, I wouldn't share his confidence about how this campaign will go. So I think it will be a surprise in terms of how he performs and the government performs the coalition government. In terms of you know number of seats, I, 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 I'm not a, an, an expert. It's too 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 far away to say, but I think my, my prediction is simply that, that I think it's not a bad bet at $3.50, Bob, I think that's not a bad bet. Um, uh, it's certainly, uh, I would see the odds being much, much less than that uh, come July 1st. Uh, that would be my prediction. Yeah, I agree. Thanks. And we've got a question up here. Hi, Helen Femster. Um, this question's primarily um, for Quentin. Um, I'm really interested as a, as a voter to be able to sort of interrogate the parties more about the future. So I was wondering about all those things that you had said we needed to do um, in the economic sphere uh, to be able to give us a, a better society that's um, going to allow all people to make the most of their opportunities. So I'm really interested in those things you think we should be doing so that as an um, involved voter I can be putting the ice on the parties That's through various So, so you'd like a list of, a list of things to think <laughs> yes, about? To yeah, ask them about. Great. Sure. So it will come as no surprise given my earlier comments. First and foremost is tax reform. So we have a complicated tax system in this country and this tax system doesn't deliver for us in terms of economic growth. So I'd be arguing for wholesale tax reform. We go back to the Henry Tax Review that was done a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Lots of good stuff still remains in there. Some of it would need to change. They didn't look at GST. But there are a number of things that need to be done and it has to be comprehensive. So if you make a superannuation change, you, you, must, you must think about the implications in terms of negative gearing and capital gains tax. If you don't, okay, there are consequences. So if you make a change to superannuation, for example, you have to make changes to age pension. You have to combine them too. If you start to make changes to company tax, you need to start thinking about changes to income tax. So it has to be done as a wholesale reform. I do not pretend this is easy. I do not pretend it can be done quickly. But what I do argue for, it really is the, the $10, in fact, the multi, multi, multi-billion dollar pieces of, uh, of, of 
change on, on, the, on, the, on, on the pathway in front of us. We need to grab that. Uh, for too long, we've chosen not to do what we need to do, and it, it's getting almost uh, too late. So that's the first thing. The second thing is uh, Prime Minister Turnbull has talked about the innovation agenda. I agree with him. We do need to have an innovation agenda and, uh, um, and set of policies, but it's not about uh, apps. Okay, okay, all right. Uh, it's not apps for the homeless. It, it's really about connecting, <laughs> connecting innovation with productivity. Now, that productivity has a dirty word with some people, but productivity is just simply the ratio of output to input. So, in other words, if we can produce more with the same amount of inputs, that's good for the environment, good for our income levels, and all that other good stuff. So, we need to think about that. We need to connect productivity to innovation to education to all those sorts of things. Now, I don't see that connection. I don't see that discussion. So we need to have a productivity agenda that actually is meaningful rather than aspirational. So those are the two things I would I'd be talking about. Innovation in a very broad sense, not in a, a narrow sense in terms of productivity uh, agenda and coupled with that with education and training. And then the other one would be a tax reform. I think if, if, if a government could do both of those, at least make good headway, move forward, as, the, as they say, in, in the three-year period, I think it would be a very good outcome for, for all Australians. We'll get ready for the last sort of few questions. Before we do, earlier, earlier each of you mentioned the issue of housing, housing affordability. So while we're getting ready for those last questions, great. Just a quick comments, if we could, just you know, a minute, most, each of you. Where do you think this issue will go? in this election, or where should it go? Uh, let me let's start. I, I actually think housing affordability is a, is, a, is a real issue out there. I think it concerns a lot of people, individuals, parents and families and so on. I think it's got quite a bite in the electorate for this election, Cam, it's an important one. Absolutely agree with Quentin. And I think the issues need to be addressed in terms of housing affordability, of negative gearing and the whole arguments about that. And there have been some very good work by um, John Daly of Grattan Institute and others about how that actually plays out and who it impacts on. And um, I think that, that that's pretty much where I'm going with it. I mean, I'm, I'm not optimistic that uh, the, the real issues of housing will be discussed much in the election. And that uh, whilst I, I mean, it is a, a, a big concern in the community, I don't think uh, any of the parties uh, are likely to say much substantive on it. I, I hope I'm proved wrong. Um, you know, I, I'm quite... Um, of radical on housing policy. I think the Commonwealth government should be more involved in housing policy uh, and we need to be thinking about government investment in housing, uh, not just leaving it to markets uh, and, and not just using uh, tax levy, tax instruments. Um, so anyway, so I'm, a, um, I'm not optimistic on the housing. But yeah. In terms of uh, the next few weeks, in terms of what we should be hearing, well, uh, I hope we would hear <laughs> a discussion, and we have in, in the context of negative gearing. Obviously, the RBA report the, uh, that came, well, the, the quotation from Freedom of Information in 2014. So I think that that's positive. At least people can start to see what the alternatives are out there. Uh, I would say that uh, in terms of the, the economy, I, I think uh, we have to go beyond slogans. So it, 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 uh, I, I would like to have a discussion about where we're going in terms of our, our revenues. Uh, and, the, and therefore the expenditures, the tax and transfer, that's a budget, there are budget deficits. What does that mean? How do we, how do we actually get, 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 get uh, address that? Uh, I would like to have a discussion uh, about beyond, beyond 
taxes. I'd have a discussion in, in terms of what Bob talked about, infrastructure, but not just we're talking physical infrastructure, in, in infrastructure and investment in, in Australians mm. uh, and how that's done. You know, So Labor will focus on health and education, no doubt. That will be their sort of the bread and butter issues for them. The coalition will presumably talk about jobs and growth, but the, the <laughs> uh, but the, 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 they're not disconnected, and, and we need as the voters to, to think at what package, what's coherent, what makes sense. Does this the, the, does two and two equal four? Or does it equal twenty six? You know? <laughs> Thanks, Gwen. Up here. Um, yes, uh, Alex Gosman. First comment: I just note as a Carlton supporter that the odds of Carlton beating Collingwood on the weekend were approximately what the odds are for the ALP, and we all know how that ended up. Um, but I suppose my other question, and, and um, Catherine, as much to you as to the other panellists, I mean, we've been having a very civilised discussion about policy, which is what you would hope and expect in a university. And the comment has been that, you know, today, two days into the election, we have been on policy. I mean, as it potentially tightens up, the polls become that much closer, things become a bit more desperate. You know, what is the risk that we go back to some of the more baser policies, and I'm in particular thinking around refugees and, and the boat? I think policy. it's good that you brought that up because the panel was saying beforehand they thought this should be discussed tonight. Let's let's go through. Where where do you think, Bob, you brought up some points about that earlier? Uh, yeah, no, thank you. I was wondering whether we'd have this discussion without any mention of that. And I think um, I think both sides of politics rather would this issue would go away during the campaign. Uh, but I don't think it is going to go away. I think two reasons for that. I think stop the boats was really a short-term policy when you think about it, with significant costs as well as benefits, politically and otherwise. Um, but in terms of our responsibilities, if you want to think of them that way, to Nauru and to um, Manus Island and Papua New Guinea have become part of the campaign with the Papua New Guinea Supreme Court's decision, which really says stop this and do you know make other arrangements. So coming back to the longer term policy, I think uh, its foundations are subject to higher risk. Uh, boat people are out there. What are we going to do? What are we going to do in our neighbourhood? How do we work with these countries? And there doesn't seem to be much debate about that. I think we need it. We might just quickly go to the next question, which is possibly our last question. Hi, my name's Yasla. Australia has one of the lowest rates of public debt to GDP amongst OECD countries in the world. Why is such a big deal made out of the budget deficit? And why is um, the coalition reducing spending when inflation is at a low and the RBA is reducing cash rates? Okay, so the, the coalition and its budget is not reducing expenditures. They, they are, in fact, growing. They're just growing at a, at a, at a slower rate. Uh, so just to be clear about that. In terms of the, 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 the net debt, um, it looks like it might max out if we take those projections at, at maybe around 20%, which is low by comparison to a whole bunch of other uh, wealthy countries. So the, the issue really is uh, in the context of uh, debt repayment or interest payments. So in the projected uh, budget, uh, we're talking about um, $16 billion in interest payments. So if the credit rating of Australia, which is AAA, and very few countries have AAA credit rating, were to go down, a AA plus or something, then they, our interest payments would go up. So we'd get basically, we'd lose out that, the gain of that, uh, that we currently have. So that, that I think is an important issue. It's, it's not fun, it, it, you know, it's not, it's not, by comparison to other countries, we have a low debt, but 
getting, uh, getting larger and getting larger rapidly, which is the current situation, is something that needs to be looked at and thought through. So I, I, would, I would say that the issue is not so much in terms of this coming financial year, 2016-17, but what are we doing the next five years? And even more importantly, and I'd like to highlight this, Greece, uh, sorry, Ireland had a uh, debt to GDP ratio of about 25% before the global financial crisis. They stepped in, they bailed out their banks, and their debt to GDP ratio jumped to 125% of GDP. So uh, I'm not saying that we have that coming in Australia, but we need to be prudent in the sense that, that we haven't had a, a recession in 26 years. We probably will have a, a recession in the next two to three years. Uh, um, uh, so uh, we need to be prudent. We need to plan for that. We need to make sure that we have the necessary ammunition, so to speak, to, to be able to deal with that. So, so I, I think both sides of this picture are, are valid. Yes, we, we don't don't currently have a debt problem relative to other countries, but we also need to be prudent and be aware that uh, if we were to have a recession, uh, the debt would likely increase very substantially, and so we need to be, be prepared. Just like to say, Quentin just shared with us, in case you missed it, that we're going to have a recession in the next few years. <laughs> so in case you missed it, that's what he just predicted. We're, right. nearly, we're nearly out of time. Given what that it's Tuesday moment. in the first week of the election campaign that was called on Sunday, mm -hmm. so it's hard to make too many calls in just a few days of campaigning, but it's been a rather extraordinary political year so far. So just quickly, each of you, highs and lows of either the campaign so far or the political year so far. We'll start at the end with Bob and just work through. Well, I guess the, the political year so far has to be the, uh, the turfing out of Tony Abbott and replacing with Malcolm Turnbull and the whole high drama around all of that. Uh, but it is, speaks to the broader problem of our politics and the stability of it and actually the sense that we want for governments to get on and do their thing. Are we capable of doing that? We have people like John Brogdon out there from the Institute of Company Directors saying, pleading for a different term, four years, we're tipping over parliaments too often. So when you get serious business people starting to argue that polit our, our time frames are too short, among other things. So, yeah. So, oh, I mean, my high so far is, um, was actually Shorten uh, saying, giving his commitment to an emission trading scheme and putting climate agenda on it. You, you know, that's not my area of expertise, but that surprised me that mm. he was prepared to do that uh, in an election campaign. Uh, and I think it does give us hope that climate change will be an issue throughout the election. Um, I haven't had any lows yet. Um, I'm fully, <laughs> fully anticipating some because I think, you know, I think we're, those of us who are interested in policy are loving the fact that there's lots of policy discussion, but, the, you know, politics is lurking. Uh, here. And Quentin, your highs and lows. The, the low is always about fear. We saw it in a newspaper recently, very recently. Uh, I think uh, that, that coupled with the s silly slogans that we're going to get, uh, I think those are lows. Uh, the highs, uh, well actually I I've been surprised uh, not only from the ALP but also the engagement we've had the last few days on some of the economic issues. It's actually been quite positive in the sense that we're having a dialogue. There's disagreement, that's to be expected, but at least we're having a discussion. At least we, the, the voters, can say, okay, they have this and they have this. It's clear what the differences are. And so that, to me, is, is, a, is definitely a plus. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, hopefully one of the highs will be every Tuesday night here at the ANU, at the Crawford School, <laughs> where you can come along each week. Please thank our panel. And uh, 
just by way of advertising, just by way of advertising, you can see updates, regular updates, on policyforum.net, a complete platform for policy analysis in the Asia-Pacific. And remember, these forums will be on The Vote, the ANU special election website. You can follow the links from anu.edu.au, and I'm sure every week there'll be fabulous speakers. Please join our panel next time. Thank, Thank you. you. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.